Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this time. I thank you for this uh, this task, this this. Thank you for the word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, remove our distractions this morning so that we might hear uh, your spirit teaching us through the pages of, of the scriptures this morning. Lord, we believe in your spirit. And we believe that the power of your spirit uh, transcends uh, the, the feeble and silly words of my mouth. Lord, so we put our trust in, in your speaking this morning more than mine. Lord, I thank you for, <clears throat> for the men and women who have given their, themselves, uh, given their lives so that we can freely do this in this country. In this Memorial Day weekend, we're reminded of, of the words of your son that no greater love has, has this than, than if a man laid down his life for a friend. We know that you were talking about yourself in that moment, but we see uh, pictures of, of you in, in the many people who have gone before, those both who find uh, themselves uh, in you and, and those who are not. Lord, we thank you for those, those people who have, who have given the highest price to, to allow us to be in this place, and we don't want to take it for granted. We thank you also for the other people, the many other people who have served, who, who didn't uh, give up their lives, but served in, in, uh, in, in very much the same way, giving up time and effort. Lord, help us to, to cherish the freedom that we have. Help us to, again, not take it lightly. Lord, as we turn to your word, uh, soften our hearts that we might uh, not be in opposition to your Spirit's work and give us eyes and ears to see and hear that you would show to us. Lord, it's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis 41 this morning. We are going to read the whole chapter. It is a long chapter, but I have confidence that you can pay attention through the whole chapter. After all, you, we spend hours sitting in front of a television and don't ever think about the distraction or being, being able to pay attention for two hours. So I think we can do it for, for 10 minutes maybe. Let's go. Genesis chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank, bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the, ear, the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. 
And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offense today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream in its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And he interpreted to us, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. And I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and he quickly, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing by the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but, they, uh, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. And I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come, at, come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and that God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these 
good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God, in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall uh, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in, the second, in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of, the, of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Aseneth, excuse me, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in, the land, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Lord, teach us through your spirit. First of all, good job paying attention that long. Second, we're, we're finally back to, to our series in, in Genesis. And if, if you haven't been here with us uh, too long, if you've been here a little more than three months, I think is what it's been since we've been in Genesis, uh, you might not know that we've been 
kind of jumping back and forth between Genesis and Romans and breaking for things like Lent and Eastern and so on and so forth. So we're back in Genesis. We'll be in Genesis for a little while now until the end of the book of Genesis. Um, that's neither here nor there. But the story of Genesis or the, the book of Genesis is divided into roughly four parts. You have the beginning and then you have the story of Abraham. Then you have the story of Jacob. Isaac kind of gets blended in between. And then you have the story primarily of Joseph. And Joseph's story pretty much begins in chapter 37. If you have not read the story of Joseph, uh, I do encourage you to read the story of Joseph. You can turn back to 37, and not, maybe not today, but right now, but, but when you go home tonight, you can read chapter 37 to the end and you can kind of get caught up. But I'll give you a brief overview. The story of Joseph is, is unique to Joseph, uh, meaning, meaning in comparison to the rest of, of Genesis. So you, again, the first 11 chapters are kind of the foundational chapters of all of Scripture. They're, they're the beginning. In the beginning, God created the, heaven, the heavens and the earth, right? And then you, you, we get to Abraham in chapter 12. And Abraham's story is really about, is about kind of simple faith. Simple faith is kind of how I would describe the story of Abraham. God says, go to this land, and Abraham just goes. Every time God speaks, really every time God speaks, Abraham believes and obeys. Yes, he has these moments where in kind of the silence of life, he makes mistakes. He goes and he lies about his wife, and then he goes and he lies about his wife again. And, but, but, but most of Abraham's life is marked with this simple faith, this simple obedience. And then we get to Jacob, and Jacob is like fundamentally different. Jacob being the grandson of Abraham. Jacob is fundamentally different. Everything that God says has to be kind of proven or given evidence. And, and Jacob kind of goes his own way and he's kind of bullheaded and is just smashing through stuff in the, in the fine china store or whatever. And he's he making mistakes all around. But God, God kind of pers- perseveres with him and, and, and wrestles with Jacob, right? And that's kind of the, the story of Jacob's life is, is that he wrestles with God. This is why God renames him Israel, man who wrestles with God. So you have, you have simple faith, and you, then you kind of have wrestling faith. And then, and then Joseph is kind of fundamentally different. And Joseph is kind of fundamentally the most important story of Genesis. Because it's in Joseph's story that we see most, most obviously or most prevalent the sovereign will of God being enacted. We see in all the stuff that happens to Joseph behind every single story, there lies God's plan and purpose coming into action. Now, as we read through the story of Joseph, we note a number of things. As we do with Abraham, as we did with uh, Jacob, as we do even with Isaac. We notice that these people are men who obey the voice of God. Joseph is no different. He hears God's words and he he follows them and he obeys them. We see at the beginning of the story in chapter 37, which sets the stage for the story. And if you remove chapter 37, the story of Joseph is not really all that great. But in chapter 37, we see Joseph has these two dreams that set the stage for our story. It establishes that what is about to take place is going to happen because of God's plan. Because of his plan. Now, as we travel through this story, we ought never to forget that what God is doing through Joseph, in fact, God does through Joseph because he is a good moral man. 
Or rather, how we, how we might, might say it better, let me say it in a different way, Joseph's right actions in God's eyes is how Joseph must act. This happens throughout Scripture. God works through people who listen to him. God does things through people who, who act according to his ways, his laws. And, and you can read Psalm 119, and you get this very, very extensive picture of all of the words of God being enacted into the lives of man, in particular the lives of men who follow after God. If you want to know what God is doing in your life, Listen to his words and obey his words and and his will will kind of come into picture for us. But if we get stuck on Joseph being a good moral character, then we've totally missed the point of Genesis. In fact, we've totally missed the point of all of scripture if our focus stops with Joseph's good right actions. Because it's before all of Joseph's good right actions... That God sets the stage, this is what's going to happen in your life in these two dreams. Joseph has two dreams. The first dream is he's standing there and a bunch of like bales of wheat bow down to him. His 11 brothers are bowing down to him is what the interpretation of this dream is. And he goes and he tells his brother because he's kind of a punky little kid. Goes and tells his brothers, his brothers don't really like this. What do you, you really think that we're going to bow down to you? And then a little, a little bit later, he has another dream. And this time, it's the sun, moon, and the stars bowing, bowing down to Joseph. So not just, now it's not just Joseph's brothers that are going to bow down to him, but it's also his father and his mother are going to bow down to him. Now, we don't want to misinterpret these dreams as if Joseph is supposed to be worshipped, as in how we think of how we're supposed to interact with, with God. Because when we think of worship with God, we think of raising him up to a, to a higher place, to the place that he truly is. And we, we think of it in a in a much more kind of big way. But in, in, in essence, what's happening is, is Joseph's brothers and Joseph's parents in this dream are, are, are worshiping Joseph or, or are prostrating themselves in front of Joseph, which is the word that we translate from the Hebrew in, as worship. Meaning we, they, they physically are going to bow down, showing a, a sign of reverence. I've talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were, when we were in our, our Psalm Sunday. right? It's a physical action to represent the reality of the social, the social realm, right? If you go into the presence of a, of a king in the ancient world or an emperor in the ancient world, you realize I'm a nobody peasant and they're a king and so I'm going to physically represent what is actually going on here socially and so I'm going to make myself low. And that's essentially what's happening in these dreams. Joseph is being told by God, mind you, that at some point in the future, he is going to find himself with a position of status that is above everybody else in the room. All of his family, all of his, his siblings, his father, his mother, which is completely unheard of in this culture, to ever be above your, your father is beyond un, un, unheard of. But yet Joseph is going to find himself in some future place in this position of authority. And we see this happening here in chapter 41. But the real question is how we get here, right? We see Joseph, he's, he's kind of shown this, and, and perhaps Joseph has been holding to this because he believes in his God. But wouldn't you think it would be hard to continue to hold on to this? 
Because Joseph, he goes and he tells his brothers, he goes and he tells his dad, and they don't really like him for it. So who is Joseph? Joseph, it is at a young age, he's, he's probably in his, he's, well, not probably, he's 17, we know this from chapter 37. He's a, he's a young man, and, and his dad gives him this coat of many colors, this colorful coat. And it symbolizes for the rest of the family that Joseph is the, is the rightful heir. And he's probably the rightful heir because he's the firstborn of Rachel, even though Rachel doesn't give birth first. Rachel is the, is the main wife and the one he really wanted, one Jacob really wants. And so Joseph is the most important. The brothers don't really like this, but the brothers go off to, to, to tend the sheep. J- Jacob or Joseph stays back with Jacob, probably to be taught the family trade because he's eventually going to take over for Jacob. And, and eventually he says, go find your brothers, make sure everything's okay. And so he goes and he finds his brothers, and, and while he's, he's coming in, they see his, his fancy coat, and they say, let's, let's get rid of this guy. We don't like him. Let's get rid of him. So Joseph, from his position of, of, of status and importance to his brothers, and his brothers strip him of his coat, symbolically stripping him of his, of his status. They throw him into a pit, probably to leave him there to die. Eventually they sell him into slavery. Now, slavery in the ancient world is not slavery in the first century, or in, in, not in the first century, excuse me, in, in, in modern times, in, in the 1800s, right, 17 and 1800s, which, which is what most Americans think of when we think of when the word slavery is said, right? We think of southern plantations. It's, it's completely about race, it's so on and so forth. This is not the slavery of the Old Testament. I'm not, I'm not condoning slavery in any form. It's always been wrong because man doesn't know how to handle power, but it's not the same. It's not, it's not as bad in the ancient world. And, and again, I'm not condoning it. It's just we gotta, we got to correct our, our, our understanding. So they sell him into slavery, which essentially means we're never going to see you again. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be abused. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be treated poorly. It just simply means we're never going to see you again. So they sell Joseph into slavery. He goes into slavery, and, and, and the reality is, is while, while it may not be as bad, he's still owned by somebody else. He's afflicted. But he goes, he goes to the land of Egypt, and Potiphar buys him. Potiphar buys him, and Potiphar is not a foolish man. He's the captain of the guard, which probably means he's extremely wealthy, probably works with Pharaoh. So Joseph is already kind of being introduced into this kind of social setting. And then... Potiphar notices something about Joseph, and this will be the first of three occasions where this will take place, where a pagan man will recognize God's blessing, God's hand of blessing upon Joseph, and then they will recognize it, not just recognize it and say, oh, that's nice, but recognize it and then use it for their own kind of gain or benefit. Potiphar sees Joseph, hey, everything that you do, Seems to work out nice. It seems like God is on your side, is blessing you in all your things. And so I'm going to take advantage of this, and I'm going to put you in charge, not of just a small little thing of my house, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. And let's see if everything in my house prospers. And you know what happens? It does. We learn from this story that, that in, in affliction, Joseph stays, he stays steadfast to his God, and in affliction, he's brought out and he's blessed by God. God is, is with you, Pharaoh, or Potiphar says. God is with you. Even in affliction, God is with Joseph. It's a good story, right? 
pretty soon, pretty soon Potiphar's wife notices Joseph. You're a cute guy. She starts to make some passes at him. Joseph is an upright, moral, righteous man. Number one, because of his God. And number two, because Potiphar has put him in charge of everything, and he doesn't want to, to kind of harm that, that trust. He says, I'm not going to sleep with you. Look at what your husband has done for me. Why would, I, why would I harm that? And he avoids her and avoids her and avoids her. And eventually, when you're in charge of the whole household, eventually you're going to run into uh, the missus with nobody around. And that's what happens. And she makes another pass, and she grabs his, she grabs his, his garment, and, and he says, no, I'm not going to do this. And he runs away. She pulls his garment off, so he's running away completely naked. And she turns in embarrassment and she says, look at this, what this Hebrew man has done. She goes and she tells her husband, her husband's not stupid. He's not dumb, right? He, he, gets, he gets what happened. If he, if he really thought that Joseph was trying to rape his wife, he would have put him to death, right? No question about it. No, he recognizes and puts him in prison. So Joseph, being this good, moral guy, great job, Joseph. Isn't that what we all want to do? You know what happens to this good, upright, moral? He's thrown in prison. Oh, God must have left him, right? God must have, have left Joseph because he didn't, he didn't do all he could to avoid this scenario. No, that doesn't sound right, does it? No. No, that's not what happens. Joseph, Joseph is thrown in prison because of his, his high moral standing. He's done good things, and yet his, his reward is a prison sentence, an unjust prison sentence. But while he's in this, this prison, and it's, it's probably a political prison more than anything, it's probably, again, not so bad, but it's still bad. It's still prison. You know what happens to this pagan uh, keeper of the jail? sees that God's hand is on Joseph and he puts him in charge of the prison. Again, the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph in his affliction. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and God is with him and he blesses the household of Potiphar. Potiphar recognizes it, puts him in charge. He's thrown into prison and he's afflicted in prison and he, he's seen by the, by the jailer. You're, you're, the hand of God is upon you. God is with you and he raises him to as, as much status as a prisoner can be in. Puts him in charge of the prison because God is with him in his affliction. The story doesn't stop there. It goes on. It goes a little bit further. And Joseph, Joseph he's, he's tending the he's tending the. the, the the prisoners, and he sees these two high-ranking, uh, high-ranking servants of, of Pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker, and, and he sees their distress, and he says, "What's going on?" They said, "We have some dreams." This is the last thing we covered before we broke for Lent and Easter. And Joseph says, "Okay, okay, cupbearer, your dream means that you're going to be restored, and baker, your dream means that you're going to be put to death." Then he turns to the cupbearer because now the baker is not going to say, oh, by the way, Joseph told, told me what my dream meant. No, he's going to be put to death. He, he doesn't like Joseph's interpretation, but, but the cupbearer does. He says, hey, can you please speak to somebody about me in here? I shouldn't be here. 
You didn't do anything wrong. And so the cupbearer, he goes to Pharaoh and he says, you should bring this guy out and everything's all nice for Joseph. No, actually two whole years passed. More affliction for Joseph. But I bet you, I bet you that's because, I bet you that's because God left him. Think? I hope we caught the pattern by now. No, God, God hasn't left Joseph. In fact, Joseph is still, still in prison. He's still in affliction. But, but through this whole process, God has never wavered on the promise of the dreams. And then Potiphar, and then, and then, and then Pharaoh has, has some dreams. And, and ding, light bulb goes off, and the cupbearer's mind says, "Oh." Whoops, I was supposed to tell you about this Joseph guy. He did a really nice thing for me. He can interpret dreams. Bring him in here. Shower, shave, get new clothes. Joseph goes in in front of Pharaoh and, and he says, well, Hey, what do my dreams mean? It's interesting how we always want to make more of dreams than, than, than even Scripture makes of dreams. Like the interpretation of these dreams should end with Joseph's interpretation of these dreams, because Joseph is the one given the gift of interpreting the dream. So we, we shouldn't look at these dreams and go, well, what does this and what does that mean? And what does all these more abundant things and try to make some fancy new? No, the interpretation is that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. That's what they mean. And they're fixed because it was doubled. That's it. It's, just, it's as simple as that. But, but note that it's not really... Right? We see yet again Joseph's, Joseph's moral standard in his, in his recognition of where this interpret, interpretation comes from. Joseph, or Pharaoh says to Joseph, he says, hey, I heard you can interpret dreams. And Joseph's like, I can't, but God can. He says, he says I, I can't, verse 16, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable response, now, or a favorable answer. Now, now, it's important that we know this is a literal a literal translation of a figure of speech. Okay? This is where literal translations kind of slip a little bit. What, what he is saying, he's not saying, um, what I'm about to tell you is going to be a good thing. Seven years of horrible, severe famine is not a good thing. In fact, if it weren't for Joseph, the whole world would have died because of this famine. It's not, it's not that what I'm about to tell you is a good thing. It's, it's rather what God is about to tell you is truthful. It's a, it's a favorable, it's a good response from God. He's going to tell you the truth of what these dreams mean. But note, it's not, it's not me, Joseph says. It's God. And he interprets these dreams. And not only does he interpret these dreams, but he does something that undoubtedly he has been doing from the very beginning. Joseph acts on the trust that he has in his God. And not only does he interpret the dreams, but he gives a reason or he gives an explanation of how to avoid death. Which is certainly what he did in Potiphar's house. You should do this, that, and the other thing. And that's why these things prospered. God, God works through mankind to enact his blessing on the world. Just, just so everybody knows, you, you don't receive blessings by sitting on your couch. You receive blessings by going and doing the will of God, being in the presence of God. And that's certainly what Joseph has been doing through this whole story. When he's with Potiphar, he's doing things and they, they come into, into fruit. 
When he's in the jail, he's doing things and they come into fruit. And now he says, here's the interpretation of the dream. And here's how you remedy the seven years of famine. And what does Potiphar say the third time in this story? He says, wait, you said, you said find a discerning and wise man. Pharaoh says, excuse me, I think I said Potiphar. Pharaoh says, this proposal is good. Can we find a man like this? Ready? In whom is the Spirit of God? Potiphar looks at Pharaoh. He says, God is with you. Joseph is in affliction and God says, God, or Potiphar says, God is with you. He's in the prison. He's in affliction. And the, and the prisoner or the, 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 the person in charge of the prison, he says, God is with you. And now Pharaoh, the most, most powerful man on earth, arguably one of the most powerful men to ever live, looks at little old uh, foreigner, Hebrew slave prisoner and says, God is with you. Ooh. That's good, right? God is with Joseph. Is there any point of this story where God is not with Joseph? No. From start to finish, from from dream to realization, God is with Joseph. You know what we don't like about this story? Is that when we, in the same confidence that we can say, God is with Joseph from start to finish, we also say that Joseph was afflicted from start to finish. You know, we don't, we don't take Old Testament narratives as, as prescriptions. We take them as descriptions and then, we, and then we compare them to the rest of the counsel of God, right? We said the same thing about the book of Acts. These are stories, not detail or not not things that we're told to go and do but if we take this principle of joseph a man who god is using whose sovereign will is being enacted in his life joseph suffered through all of this but god was with him and we look at other men whose whose god's sovereign will was being enacted upon and and do great things from start to finish you know what else we see Many of them, most of them, I think, I think, I think almost all of them go through some period of affliction. Moses, who is arguably again one of the most important characters in the Old Testament, Moses, he he's 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 going to be killed by Pharaoh because he's a he's a newborn. His mom puts him in a reed basket, sends him down the river, and he's he's raised in the house of. A pharaoh, isn't that affliction? No, it's not the affliction. Moses, he's, he's kind of stuck between these two worlds. He's stuck between his, his adopted Egyptian family and, 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 and his own rightful kin. And he sees their, their suffering. He doesn't really like it. And eventually, he's like, i got to act out on this. And he, and he kills an Egyptian. You know what happens? Everybody rejects him. His people reject him because look at you being all tough and mighty and higher than us. And, and the Egyptian is like, you can't kill you can't kill somebody. And so he has to run out into the desert and he has, to, he has to be a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness. What about David? David, we're talking about David in, in our Sunday morning Bible study. David, he, he, he's anointed king. He's probably 15, 16 years old. It's, it's 15 years before he actually takes the throne in Israel. It's 15 years of, of King Saul 
constantly trying to take his life. And we see in the Psalms just constant repetition of, I've been afflicted, Lord, how much longer? But yet God used David. And that's not to mention the, the, the innumerable stories of the prophets who spoke on God's behalf and, and spoke to the people, stop sinning, turn back to God, and everybody hated them and wanted them dead. But that's not the point of this story. It's not, it's not the point of the story is that we will be afflicted. If we want to live in God's sovereign will, I think the, the pattern of Scripture is that if we live in God's sovereign will, we will both act out God's sovereign commands and we will, we will probably suffer at the hands of the world. That's, that's the pattern laid out for us in Scripture. But that is not the point of this story. The point of this story, I think, my personal opinion, is so much better. God is, God is with Joseph from start to finish. But what is the story? What is, what is this picture? Joseph, a man of status, is brought down into affliction. Has to suffer a while on the earth in various forms and ways until one day, because of God's sovereign plan, his sovereign will, he is brought to a position of status to save the earth. To save, rather, let's put it in a better term, mankind. Does that sound familiar? You know, all throughout Scripture, there's these, these pictures, or, or what we would call, what, what are called types of Jesus. Not, not types as in, like, this is a prototype, this is this is a representation, or this is the this is something that came out of the same mold as the Christ. Joseph is a Messiah by the definition of the word Messiah. Messiah means an anointed one, anointed one for the purpose of rescuing God's people, because God is the God of salvation, and He He has this mold, which is Jesus. And Joseph comes out of this mold just like Jesus. Jesus is, is the one who is up in heaven in a place of honor and authority and in his rightful place. And he comes down to the earth and he lives a life in affliction, rejected by his very own creation. He goes to a cross, which is probably the definition of affliction. So that he can rise three days later and save mankind. Joseph is a beautiful picture for us of that work of God. God has always been in the business of saving the world. He did it with Joseph. And he did it with his son Jesus. That gift is then given to man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the story of Joseph. I thank you that we see in the, the bumps and the trials of Joseph's life, we see your hand at work.
And thank you that you gave Joseph the dreams at the beginning of the story to ensure for us or to to teach us or illuminate for us that, that you had this plan from the very start. I thank you that this story is a as a mold, as a representation of the story that happens later. By your plans, by your purpose, really, that happens before. From the very dawn of time, from the foundation of this world, that you, you plan to send your son as you plan to send Joseph. That he was afflicted, he was rejected, he was cast aside, that he was crucified, buried, Lord, and then he rose. He rose to save mankind. As Joseph saved, saved mankind for a season, Jesus saves mankind for all eternity. Lord, I thank you and I praise you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for his work. I thank you for his gift to each and every one of us. And I pray that you would draw souls into that truth. That your spirit would be the means and the method and the beckoning call into the hearts of those who still do not know Jesus as their Savior. Lord, it's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name that we pray.